Hello and welcome to the Eye-Catching Words podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. Later on, I'll be doing my usual catch-up with the news and things that have amused me over the last week. But on this occasion, I'm turning the format on its head and trying something different. And I'm kicking off with a conversation with Peter Collis, someone I've known professionally and personally for about a decade. He is a British and a German citizen and spends a lot of time each year in the two countries and has some very positive views about both his home nations. After several years post-Brexit of an endless focus on European separation and the difference between Britain and the rest of Europe, he offers a great vision of how Germany is a model for how countries can work together. In this conversation we cover aspects of his family story, the history of post-war Germany, national character, how real politic can take you forward, and the need for a modern approach to immigration. It's a compelling narrative told with humour and compassion. So sit back, be prepared to have your European lenses adjusted and enjoy something different. Peter, thank you for being my guinea pig. Uh, as we've just discussed, you are both English and German. Uh, not half of one or half the other, but, but English and German. Uh, I just wonder if you could kick off by explaining uh, your family origins, um, because your parents met uh, just after the Second World War, didn't they? So, well, well, firstly, thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast. It's, uh, I, it is an honour, and I do appreciate it. So my father was British. Uh, he joined the Air Force during the Second World War, ended up on Lancaster bombers, um, was shot down in the uh, vicinity of Stuttgart, taken prisoner, liberated by the Russians, handed over to the Americans, returned to Britain. And then, if you remember, by the time the war ended, Germany was in ruins yes. and there was no civil government. So the country was actually ruled by the occupying powers. So he went out as a an airman, just sort of as a small cog in this large, you know, wheel, sort of effectively administering the country. My mum, like a lot of, you know, German girls, found herself single. I think she'd had a boyfriend, but he'd been killed on the Russian front. And uh, so, you know, they, they, they got together. And when she then met my dad, my grandparents said, well, look, you know, you've met this really nice bloke. Um, Germany's in absolute ruins. Go to England with our blessing, make a new life with him there. Huge sacrifice for them, though, because I mean, in those days you couldn't just jump on an easy jet flight at weekends to pop back and see the parents. You know, it was like going to the other side of the world, really. And so her reaction to that, because she was very close to them, but she also appreciated that, was t- for us to go and spend every summer, and, and not just for a couple of weeks. You know, as soon as school broke up, we'd clear off to Germany, we'd come back, and school was due to restart. So I had this rather strange upbringing where England was kind of school and grey and, you know, homework and stuff. And Germany was summer and indulgence and having fun. And we go to Easter sometimes as well, yeah. Do you still have family connections in Germany? Sadly not, no. We, um, I mean, as I said, my mum was the only one of four survivors. Yeah. There are no cousins. 
Um, the family also, I mean, during the Depression, my grandfather uh, had been a coal miner in Aurora. The Depression hit Germany very hard, if you remember. I mean, I think the number of unemployed was about 6 million. Mm. I think it may have been about 3 million here. And so, in a desperate search for work, they moved away from the Ruhr and settled in this more rural part of northern Germany. And uh, so, they kind of left a lot of the family behind at that point as well. So, no, I mean, in theory, I will have relations scattered over Germany, but in reality, none yeah. were in touch with. Correct me if I'm wrong, but your mother was during the war was, was employed on war work, wasn't she, in Germany? Was that correct? It's slightly hilarious. I mean, so my father, you know, Bomber Command, Bank etc. My mother worked for the German Civil uh, Air Defence Association. You know, so, I mean, she wasn't actually firing 88mm shells at the Lancasters, but she <laughs> he was dropping them and she was trying to sort of deal with the consequences. I don't think people really understand quite how incredible that period in history was. I mean, like you, my father, saw service during the Second World War, um, although he, he talked very little about it. But that generation, they had some remarkable things to deal with. It's, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's quite... Um, my mum's three brothers, actually, they, they weren't killed in the war. They, they actually died in infancy. Right. And probably poverty, hunger yeah. would have played a part in that. Yeah, I mean, Germany... In, the period between 45 and 49, when the Bundesrepublik was founded, was, yeah. is extraordinary. My dad had to get permission from his wing commander to marry an enemy alien. And uh, it was a quite extraordinary period. Awful things happened. I mean, the, the British reused a lot of the old concentration camps. Right. But on the flip side, I mean, the Brits, I think the Brits probably played more of a role than anybody else in the design of the new German constitution which I think has been an incredible success, has really stood the test of time. And, uh, and when you look at what a stable, mature democracy Germany is, the way that it absorbed integration with East Germany, the way that it absorbed a million Syrian refugees in 2015, there's a lot of reasons for all of that, but I think the, the, the constitutional structure has been brilliant, actually. One of the things I wanted to explore was this German success story, which I don't think, I mean, a lot of people talk about the German economic success story, but then there is also a whole story about rebuilding and, and recreating a culture in a nation which was divided for many years. Uh, and you talk about military rule just after the Second World War. Did your, uh, did your family, did your mother ever talk about um, the post War Germany, the immediate bit of post-war Germany, and what it was like effectively to be ruled by an occupying by occupying forces, not just one, because you had the French uh, and the British and the Americans and the Russians, effectively all politicking over their bits of Germany, which of course is how East and West Germany came about. Uh, how deeply did that kind of impact on the on the German psyche? Do you think? Strangely enough, I mean. It will have done, of course. Um, strangely, though, I mean, the, the family stories were very different because I think, in, essentially, there was relief to have survived. Yeah. So, I mean, they were at least alive. It was a time when my mum and dad met one another, fell in love, so that was a happy story. I think the my father and his sort of his, his, his fellow uh, <laughs> occupiers, I mean, they had a way of time, actually. I mean, you know, they didn't take their duties too seriously. I mean, you know, they'd come through hell. I mean, my father, after he was shot down 
Um, he was taken to a prisoner of war camp in what is now Poland. And then during the winter of 45, they were marched in freezing conditions from there towards Berlin. And a third of them died on the march. Once you've come through that and you're alive and you've got a bit of money in your pocket, you know, I mean, actually, you're, you're going to enjoy life. But I think the contrast I draw, just going back a little bit to what you said about sort of, you know, the aftermath of war, I've, I've talked to German friends quite a lot about this, obviously. And I'm, I'm very conscious. I mean, I, I've, on the one hand, you know, have nothing but admiration for the courage of people like my dad who flew in Bomber Command. On the other hand, some of the bombing, particularly towards the end of the war, strikes me as having been just completely vindictive. Mm. You know, I mean, cities that had no military significance were just blown to pieces. And I've talked to my German friends about this. And their reaction, surprisingly, has often been, we needed to be completely destroyed so we could start again from square one. And so I think you had, from 45 onwards, and particularly once the Bundesrepublik was set up, it was kind of a, right, we're starting again from scratch. So I think there was a whole attitude. And what I find quite interesting, actually, is, so on the one hand, West Germany had enormous help through the Marshall Plan. On the other hand, East Germany had its assets stripped out. I mean, the Soviets took anything they thought was of any use. Yeah, I mean, uh, immediately after the war, they were actually dismantling power stations and shipping yeah, them back to railway Russia. lines, the whole lot. Yeah. And yet, now... Clearly, there was a vast economic gulf in the end between West Germany and East Germany. But within the Warsaw Pact, East Germany was the most successful economy. And I think that says probably something about sort of the culture and the attitude of the Germans as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I read uh, an account of occupying Germany and getting to know Germans. The American troops weren't that fond of the British troops, and they were not at all fond of the French troops. But they actually got on really well with the German troops and the German officials they encountered. They always felt that German people were, were very straight, um, maybe abrupt, but always very, very straight. Which kind of takes me on really to wanting to ask, you can debate whether there is such a thing as national character. I think most people would agree there is. How would you characterise the German national character? And it's, I know it's a difficult question because there are... I don't know, 80 million Germans? Uh, I don't know what the population is 80, now. 88 million. Yeah. Um, so you've got 88 million individuals, obviously, but is there such a thing as national, the German national character? And how would you define it? I'd like to draw a distinction between national character and, and culture. Um, I think as far as character is concerned, I think I would say... I've often been asked this question. And my, my answer is usually... The starting, starting point shouldn't be what are the differences between Britain and German, British and Germans. What are the similarities? Because I think we have far more in common than, we, than is different, actually. So I think, think if you want to think of the Germans, start by thinking of the Brits, and then maybe just sort of hone in on a few small but significant differences, I suppose. The Germans are quite serious, um, they take things seriously. They take their pleasure and their enjoyment seriously too. You know, so I mean, when it's knocking off time, it's knocking off time, and that's it. Off they go. But they don't. They don't sort of faff about. Um, so I, I'll give you an example. We have uh, an apartment in Germany. So there's a management company that looks after the apartment block. Known them for 15 years since we had our apartment. We also have an apartment in Swansea, and there's a management company that looks after that. Now, if I need to go and speak to any of the lads who work on site down in Swansea, oh, hi, Pete, how are you doing? Da, 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 da. 
We have 20 minutes of really enjoyable chit-chat before we get to the subject. If I go into the office in uh, Harman Clay to speak to the management company there, oh, hello, Herr Collis, how nice to see you again. How are you? Good. Uh, how are you? Very good. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, what is it? And there it is. And now, on the one hand, I really like the Welsh approach because yeah. it's really nice. It's friendly, it's humorous, it's lovely. It makes life, you know, colourful. On the other hand, the German approach tends to get more things done. <laughs> and that's interesting, isn't it? Because in a sense, there's no value judgment there because you can you can admire both those points of view. But if you do spend a certain amount of your time at work talking about the football or last night's TV or uh, what was in the newspapers, that is an overhead on the productivity of, of the organisation, the people and ultimately the country. And... That that may be fine. I mean, obviously, we talk about Italians and French, and you know, with the Italians, it's much more about sort of long lunches and uh, much more relaxed approaches to everything. But it's not that there's anything right or wrong. But it is a, it is the genuine difference, isn't it? It's just it's just different. And I find Germans quite. I say, I mean, all the, some of the stereotypes are, are true. I mean, you know, they do like rules. And they do like to follow rules and they observe rules um, on the whole. They're quite serious. I mean, if I compare... I mean, they've got a tabloid paper built like we've yeah. got tabloids. But if I look at the German serious press, yeah. I mean, to look at a German newspaper, it actually looks quite boring because it's just full of quite serious stuff, really, mm. um, even compared to our sort of, you know, more more serious papers. But the, um, the cultural point I was going to make, though, is that a way to think of Germany culturally now is think of all your stereotypes of Prussia and Nazi Germany and all the rest of it and stand them on their head. Because I think the way that Germany's reinvented itself since the war has been almost a complete reaction. So it's a very non-militaristic country. Although just since the, the war in Ukraine, Schultz has said he wants to massively increase you know, the, uh, the strength of the German armed forces. They're in quite a state at the moment. And some of that... Some of it's because they haven't spent enough money, but a lot of it's just because it's kind of, it's almost been looked down upon a bit, you mm. know, as a, as, a, as a profession. And people just, I mean, in the way that in Britain we're rightly, I think, very proud of our military, you don't get that kind of thing in Germany. And human rights. I mean, the first article in the German constitution is about the protection of human rights. Look at immigration. I mean, Germany has said... Its, its, its goal is to be the most immigration-friendly country in Europe. Um, and I was reading an afternoon today where the, uh, one of the German ministers said they're working on some new legislation. They want it to be the most modern and efficient immigration legislation in Europe. So all the things you might think of Germany as being, if you sort of stuck with your kind of dad's army stereotypes... It's, the country is actually culturally the very opposite, mm. you could imagine, I think. And, uh, and an incredibly tolerant society, actually. Well, I think, again, that's really interesting because prior to the First World War, during the period of Kaiser Wilhelm, there was a huge focus on building up the military, but not just building up the scale and size of the military, but also establishing a military mentality in people that put huge value on young men being in uniform. And I think that went right through the interwar period. Uh, it went underground for obvious reasons, but of course one of the first things that uh, happened uh, under Hitler was uh, 
a, re a rebirth of military-style thinking. Now, that wasn't without its um, contradictions, because I think the German, the traditional German army was very much at odds with the uh, militia that Hitler created. Uh, but uh, one novel I, I read had a character in it, and uh, one of the characters in there is a German tailor. He says, oh, you know, I quite like uh, Hitler and, and this regime because they've done wonders for the uniform business. <laughs> um, I remember that. <laughs> but I was really struck by what you said earlier about after the war, we obviously had Nuremberg, the whole concept of um, human rights, uh, and in fact, the very word genocide came out of thinking that took place immediately after the Second World War. It didn't exist as a word uh, in the mm. 1930s. So in a, in a sense, Germany was right there at the forefront of a, of a huge social and cultural experiment, wasn't it? And you said uh, the only way was up. You know, the country had been reduced to its very basic fabric and, and it had to recreate itself. If we move on to uh, 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall, you must have watched that with incredible interest. I mean, I'm assuming your family history was on the west side, was it, or, or was it on, on, or was it a mixture? No, it, it was on the west. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I said, my grandfather came from the Ruhr, his family were there. My grandmother's family came from northwest Germany, which yeah. is where the family then returned when when my grandfather right. was just thrown out of work. It seemed it seemed unthinkable. I mean, when I was spending you know my sums in Germany as a kid, you were surrounded by the uh, evidence of the Cold War. Yeah. So I mean, we had, uh, and this is a small market town, about the same similar in size and character to Dorking, actually. So that gives you an idea of the place. So in that town, we had two German army barracks, because of course they had conscription in those days. There was a British um, garrison just down the road, Minden. Uh, the central flying school for helicopters for the German military was on an airfield just outside the town. And it was almost a daily occurrence to see armoured vehicles, you know, trundling yeah. along the high street. You know, and, and so you had all of... You could not imagine... <laughs> that all of this would just fall away at some yeah. point. It was quite incredible. And the, the fall of the, of the Berlin War, uh, I mean, we tend to look at historical events as though they are clean and you can put dates to things. Uh, and you can on one level, but the, the Berlin Walls, the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was months afterwards that there must have been a huge unfolding of political trauma because there were people who didn't want to reunite with the West weren't there and there were other people that did well and there were, and there were people who were dead against it like yeah. Mrs Thatcher you know, because I mean you know, for a lot of people the thought of suddenly Germany becoming reunited was a bit of a nightmare yeah but uh, yeah, it was Cole who really drove it through yeah. and you know in the end I mean um, Thatcher and the other Western leaders and of course Gorbachev enabled it he could have stopped it but he didn't so he held back, that kind of enabled it, yes. um, and then Call really drove the thing through. And yes. I mean, the, the preparation they put into some of this was quite incredible, actually. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, in fact, there was, there was a, for about six months, a very short-lived elected government in East Germany, because the communist 
regime mm, was swept yeah. away, yeah. and there was a kind of a, well, what do we do now? <laughs> and they did have elections, and I can't remember his name, I'm afraid, but there was actually a, uh, um, a, a German, an East German Chancellor equivalent for a while, and then, then the four plus two negotiations, yes. um, so yeah. the four successful World War II powers plus the two Germanys agreed on, on reunification. But it's an extraordinary, as a period I find absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, it, it is fascinating. Um, and by the time of the, of the Berlin, fall of the Berlin Wall, there had been uh, almost exactly 40 years, which is, you know, a couple of generations of young East Germans for whom the idea of a, a unified Germany was something their parents and grandparents talked about, which must have been incredibly new to them. It must have offered so many cultural opportunities. It was, it was quite difficult for a lot of East Germans. I mean, you know, not just the ones who'd sort of, you know, been active members of the Communist Party or Stasi or whatever, but, you know, a lot of people have kind of invested their lives and their careers in East Germany. And, um, and there was a kind of a sort of two, two sort of jokes, almost sum, sum it up a bit. Um, one is that there's a term, it's not a joke, there's a term that the Easterners use for the Westerners, which is called Besseveses, which means Westerners who know better. Because there was an element of the Westerners sweeping in and saying, oh God, this is all rubbish, yeah. isn't it? You know, we need to sort this out. Yeah. And the Western perspective of the Easterners was they're lazy and ungrateful. Yeah. You know, we're doing all this for them. And just, uh, I think there was a tendency to rubbish the East German culture a bit too quickly. Yeah. I had a fabulous example of this. My, my, one of my friends and I were visiting, of all things, a steam locomotive repair works. Because actually German, East Germans kept steam locomotives going well into the 80s yeah. because they had lots of coal and oil was expensive to import. Yeah. So they actually been quite good at steam locomotives. And this steam loco works has now been repurposed and it's a the major centre for um, uh, repairing and building heritage steam locos. Anyway, but we, we did, we, we'd made a visit to this place and we were shown around by a guy who'd been a shop steward back in the communist time. And we were with another couple who were from East Germany. And we walked into one of these halls, you know, and workshops, and uh, there was a photo, photo of Erich Honecker, who was one of the last East German leaders, up on the wall. And my mate, who's normally a very sensitive guy, but he just fell about laughing. He said, oh my God, they've got a picture of Honecker on the wall. And I could see this couple bristling. And I said, well, then, well, we do have to remember, it was their heritage too. This was their culture. And, and the woman, she sort of puffed right up. She said, yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It was our heritage. It was our culture. Because obviously, looked at in many ways objectively, the state of East Germany was pretty rubbish compared to the state of West Germany. There was a bit of an arrogance and an assumption mm. that, well, we'll just go in there and sort it all out. And I've read quite a lot of books about it. And quite a lot of East Germany. There's a bit of a nostalgia, they call it now. So in some ways, some of the old GDR stuff has become a bit cruel, you know, like the cars and the motorbikes. And the posters and the, yeah, yeah, the, yes, the clothes. Stuff, yeah. But when you read more seriously... Most people say, no, of course, we wouldn't want to go back to those days. But there were some good things about it as well. Mm. You know, most of it was rubbish, but not all of it was rubbish. And there's perhaps a more nuanced understanding these days that mm, we need to perhaps respect some of that and think a bit more about that. I think you, if you're not careful, you uh, 
been an entire history and an entire culture exactly. uh, and in doing so you, you breed resentment and uh, I mean I saw an article recently about uh, the Americans attitude towards Iraq after the Iraq war and the lack of respect you can't do that it breeds resentment doesn't it uh, even if you set down some very clear military and economic uh, aims the culture is the culture and I'm sure in East, East Germany in particular there was probably a really vibrant underground culture uh, which may have been allowed to exist uh, by the regime or at least in part uh, because we do know that, that uh, oppressive regimes don't tend to uh, kill off cultures they just drive them underground uh, and even Russia today has, has its underground uh, cultures. Yeah. And, and that's how the ha in terms of the, pre I mean, the war came down for all sorts of reasons, yeah. and it wasn't just a thing that was unique to Germany, of course. I mean, Hungary played a very yeah. leading role in that. Um, but yes, I mean, within East Germany, a lot of the pressure came from that, that movement, built yeah. and built, uh, through the, facilitated through the churches. The churches became the, the meeting points, yeah. like the Nikolai Kirche in Leipzig, most, most notably. And... Uh, there's a great series of films, and um, they're sort of they're, they're kind of spy thriller films, but they are brilliant. Yeah. Kind of, I mean, they're good thrillers, yeah. but they're also brilliant at just capturing um, the whole. But, but presumably, I mean, we're, we're used to seeing um, Cold War thrillers written from the West, from the English perspective and the American perspective, but this is from the German perspective, presumably. And, and the lead character actually is an East German spy who's yeah. sent into the West. You know, right. So, uh, I won't give any more away about what happens, but you know that's sort of the perspective they start from. Yes, so actually, yeah. you see all of his background in East Germany and how he becomes, you know, an agent for the stars, yeah. and, and there's all of that sort of backdrop to it. Uh, earlier on, you mentioned uh, Bild, the German newspaper. What would you, what would you kind of take be on German uh, media compared to British media, and I, I mean that in the widest sense. Um, Newspapers, television, radio. Yeah, it's. Um, I think German TV and films. Films certainly have made a resurgence. I mean, there was a time. I mean, it was quite funny as a kid when I used to go to the cinema in Germany. And there was no German TV. Right. So as a kid, you know, you want to go and watch war films and things. So you troop in and you'd watch things like you know, The Guns Are Never Own or something, or The Great Escape dubbed into German. It must have been quite surreal, actually. Well, it was, because, of course, in Britain, you know, you'd watch something like that, you'd come out of the cinema, and you'd all be a bit chuffed, or, you know, the good guys won, whereas in Germany, everyone troop out a bit depressed. <laughs> so, well, it was quite interesting, but, you know, guess yeah, you lost again. Yeah. Actually, thing. one of my <laughs> least finest moments was uh, being on a beach in Thailand in the 80s, with, where it had very few amenities, but uh, once a week, the owner of the cafe on the beach would drive into the nearest town and rent a video. And uh, he asked my opinion. He said, I've got a long list of videos here. Which one shall I get this weekend? And I I stupidly said, oh, Mel Brooks, the producers, is very funny. Forgetting it is. It is. that three quarters of the patrons of his cafe and three quarters of the people staying at this particular beach resort, the German, of course. So uh, we sat there watching uh, people singing Springtime for Hitler. Uh, uh, and I was laughing and looking around and then suddenly realising that most of the audience looked a little bored. Um, coming sort of up towards the modern day, 
you go to Germany a great deal. Um, you've said you don't have any real family out there. You go there presumably because you love the country mm. and because you love many things about it. Um, I have heard a rumour that you're quite uh, 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 fond of your meat. Um, <laughs> so uh, German is uh, renowned. Actually, my father went to East Germany on a trade mission back in the 70s and couldn't believe the amount of food and meat <laughs> that he was presented with. Uh, but uh, you must love the culture, you must love the day to day, you must love going to the restaurants. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that you've even managed to persuade restaurant owners to let you have a corner to do video calls in uh, on occasions, <laughs> which, uh, which uh, shows you how obliging they are. Indeed. It's, I mean... Goethe uses a lot. I'm a big fan of Goethe, and there's a lovely um, expression he uses, which he says, "You know, home is where you understand and are understood." And obviously, I feel Britain is home, but I feel Germany is very much home yeah. in that sense. That's and a wonderful. Uh, that's a wonderful quote. I love that phrase. What's been really nice, actually, how it's kind of spread to other members of the family. Eldest son and I, we got in the habit. We're both quite keen hikers, and our flat is up in the Harz Mountains, which is along the Black Forest, probably the leading hiking area in Germany. And we got in the habit, donkey's years ago, of just going for a week together to go. I mean, and again, he, he likes his meat and his beer every bit as much as me. And that was lovely. And then when he met his, his now wife, um, she was actually born in Germany. Her dad was a soldier. So she has very fond memories of growing up in Germany uh, as the, uh, the kid of a British soldier there. Uh, so they then started going to our place in, in Germany. They're determined to take our little grandson there as soon as it's practicable. Fantastic. And those those links are purely born out of uh, his his shared love of the country with mm. you. Uh, yeah. That's where it started and that's yeah. how it He's, continued. He and my daughter now are both on their way to becoming German citizens too, wow. mind. <laughs> Which kind of, open. <laughs> kind of segues nicely into bringing things up to date. The uh, referendum of 2016 in Britain about the continued membership of the EU, that must have sent a few shockwaves through Germany. How did that feel? I mean, how did it feel to you when Britain voted to, to leave the EU? Well, personally, I was absolutely devastated. And I think I'd probably grown up with quite a... German perspective on the EU. Mm. So to me, it had always felt like it was much more than just a trading arrangement. To me, the, re the reason for the EU was to stop Europe tearing itself apart through wars. And then we're seeing right now what that looks like when it happens. So the EU, and this is very much the German view, of course it was about trade, but it's about much more than trade. And so I was personally devastated. The reaction amongst my German friends was, I think, more than anything, one of intense sadness. Mm. Surprisingly, perhaps to a lot of Brits, the Germans actually have a very high regard for the Brits. Mm. They sort of admire our, our pragmatism. Uh, they like our humour. I mean, you'll know that an ancient black and white British comedy is compulsive viewing on New Year's Eve every year in cross Germany. Nobody mm. has ever heard of it. No, for one. I, I had heard of, I had <laughs> I read about this for the first time recently. Actually, can you just do this? It's a little bit of a rabbit hole. Can you just describe what that is? Because it is an incredible story, that, that this obsession. They it's haven't. just bonkers. Um, there's no other word for it. So there's this rather lame <laughs> black and white comedy 
uh, with this this elderly woman and this butler, and as the evening goes by, you know, they get more drunk, and he keeps falling over this rug and so on. It's sort of it's it's ancient black and white slapstick humour. It's, it's really. a British production. It's a British production, and every year you will have something like six German TV channels screening this thing. And they will watch it again and again and again. I, I, I don't get it, honestly, even as a German, I no. don't get it. No. Um, but my point is, so they, and, and they like our more relaxed approach to life. I mean, there's a great strength of the German economy and their culture is that they are very serious, very disciplined, very well organised, very efficient, all that sort of stuff. But they also kind of quite envy us for the fact we're not quite like that and we are a bit more relaxed and, you know, we take life a bit more easy. Um, but they've always seen us as real allies in Europe, mm. a country that they've found... And we're not, when I used to be involved in EU negotiations, it was always very easy to make common cause with the Danes and the Dutch and the Germans. We were often, you know, mm. very much on the same page. Mm. And so I think there was just this, this feeling of intense sadness that I think they thought Britain really brought something mm. to the EU. And they were sad to see it being lost, actually. They thought, you know, we'd, we'd all be the poorer for it. So... Since then, I mean, a lot of events have got uh, tangled up with each other uh, in the 21st century. The refugee crisis, Britain's departure from the EU, and more recently the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But would you say that you were optimistic about Germany going forward, and and do you think it will be successful in continuing to provide leadership around these important issues. Uh, I I get the impression you think Germany is well-placed to deal with these things. Very much so. I mean, I think the... And some of this goes right back to, you know, when we talked about, you know, the horrors of the war, German militarism and all the rest of it. So I think when Germany started rebuilding itself, um, and Adenauer led this very strongly, the first West German Chancellor, there was a real desire, we have to prove to the world that we can be model citizens, right. that we are decent people. And so the whole, sort of the you know very keen early members of NATO, keen early members of the European Union, a lot of this was showing we, we can be decent, responsible world citizens, you know, making our contribution. And I think some of that is still there. I think the response to the refugee crisis is... In, in part, is still driven by that. I think Germans still feel an obligation to show that they can be decent people and it's a decent country. There's also, though, a hard-edged dose of economic realism in that. Germany population of about 88 million, but left to its own demographics, that will be a declining and ageing population. Yeah. So there's been a real recognition that actually we do need migration in order to you know, keep our workforce going. Mm. So it's, you know, sort of, it's kind of, there's a noble part of this and there's quite a hard-edged economic part part to it. I think in terms of leadership, I mean, now I'm in danger of sort of sounding a bit sort of, I don't know, triumphalist about this, but I think when you look around, it seems to me that Germany's almost become the standard bearer for liberal Western democracy. I would agree. With you look that. at you look at the turmoil in the states these days. You look at the turmoil that we've been going through recently. You look at what's happened in countries like Italy, Germany. I think Germany's got enough problems. Of course, it has. I mean, no country is perfect. Um, but as a kind of a fairly robust, mature 
country with strong Western values, it strikes me that it is now pretty much the leader of the, the Western world in that sense. And, and it's, it's getting over, it's ner- I mean, there was a huge nervousness, again, because of the war, of throwing its weight around internationally. So Germany's always punched below its weight, militarily and diplomatically, because it just felt it should. I mean, the last thing the world wanted to see was an overbearing, militaristic Germany again. Yeah, the kind of Prussian image. All of that. So, but but slowly, they're sort of, and then Ukraine, of course, has been a real, you know, um, shock to the system for this. Mm. They're, They're starting to come out of that and accept that they have to play a bigger role on the world world stage. I, I think that's a really good note to end on because, I mean, I would agree with you. America, I think not just at the time of Trump, but over, over a number of years before that, had started to walk away from that leadership role that it demonstrated after the Second World War. Uh, and I think there was a period, uh, frankly, probably going from the Reagan era onwards of... Uh, not providing the kind of leadership that Europe needed. In a sense, Germany is increasingly filling that vacuum. And I think it's in everyone's interest to keep that German uh, presence strong uh, because all the other European countries, particularly the the more recent joiners in the EU, like Poland and Hungary, they're they're still, I think, very, very uh, flaky. Uh, They're still open to manipulation uh, politically and we know that uh, there are a lot of things happening in Hungary that have caused it to uh, rub up not against Germany necessarily but about the basic concepts of the EU so just to finish off I have to ask you what is the German word for vegan is there a German word for vegan (laughs) (laughs) If if there is you don't know it I know vegetarian, which is unsurprisingly vegetarish. Um, goodness me. Uh, yeah, now, here we, here we have a mission um, for you. Uh, I would task you, Peter, well, on your next trip to Germany to find out what the German word for vegan is. And I would even challenge you to see if you can find a vegan restaurant somewhere. Well, challenge accepted. I, in turn, am going to give you a challenge, which is say, I think you should visit Germany. I would um, love to. One of the things I would love to see happen more, it's interesting, a lot of Brits don't think of Germany as a whole destination, but the research that's been done suggests that once they've been there once, they very often go again and again. Yeah. You know, people do really appreciate what the country has to offer, and there's some amazing, Berlin's an incredible city mm. these days, Hamburg is absolutely great, Munich's great. Um, if you want, my, my tip, my insider tip, the kind of a quick get into German history and culture would actually be Nuremberg. Right. It's a stunning, it was because it was sadly, you know, very much the place that Hitler thought of as the kind of cultural epicenter of Germany. It was blown to bits during the Second World War, but they rebuilt it almost stone by stone. So it's just physically very attractive. Um, you've got this massive castle looking down on this lovely medieval city with its medieval walls and a river running through it and so on. So it's just a really nice place to wander around for a few days. Um, and then when you've had enough of the serious stuff, it's a really great base for getting out to some beautiful medieval towns and cities like Bamberg and Bayreuth and mm-hmm. Ortenburg op der Tauber. Easy train journeys, you know, from Nuremberg. And did the trains run on time? They gen- they're not, not as well as they should. 
if I'm absolutely honest, but much better than some countries I can think of, let's put it that way. And Nuremberg is, that's a great note to finish on, Nuremberg is also, on top of all those other attractions, the home of the National German Railway Museum. It sounds like from what you're saying that um, there is a lot more uh, that's in common between Britain and Germany and there's a, a lot that we can get from each other as countries. There so is, there so is, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Justin. No, yeah. thank you very much, Peter, thank you. It's difficult to know where to begin with the last week's news as the stories were coming so thick and fast that at one point it was like trying to keep your eye on a single red snooker ball after the opening break. Come the weekend, however, it was clear that one story was dominating and unusually a consensus view was emerging amongst some journalists who are often diametrically opposed. This was some agreement that Johnson is a spent force for the foreseeable future. It is possible that, like Voldemort in Harry Potter or Sauron in The Lord of the Rings, there will be a return in the distant future and a final reckoning. But for now, we've got the beast off our back after a week in which he squirmed very publicly and was forced to take part in a humiliating defeat over the Windsor Protocol. The second emerging consensus point is that it's been a good week for Rishi Sue, as I've decided to call him. He may be rich, not usually an issue with Tory voters anyway, but at least he could prove he pays his taxes. He cornered Johnson, sorted Northern Ireland, and at least one set of statistics show he had made some significant inroads into Labour's lead in the polls. This is important because the Tories are rather like one of those incumbent champion football teams who are sitting on top of the league and playing the opponents snapping at their heels. With an 80-seat majority, they don't need to win the next election. They just need to get a draw to retain their title. Starmer will have gone into the weekend with a furrowed brow and the beginnings of a general election sense of uneasiness. In the middle of all the turmoil, the question being asked by people who could see beyond the White Cliffs at Dover was, why is France burning? Charles and Camilla will have been disappointed at missing out on some decent food and a bit of shopping, but as one commentator observed years ago, the British take pension age increases lying down, whereas the French take to the streets. Over the channel, you can retire at 62 and with a significantly bigger pension than we Brits get at 66. Closing the gap by just a half has quite literally proved incendiary. The last big news item of the week was actually the first, with the Casey review of the Metropolitan Police coming out on Tuesday and being largely forgotten by Friday. Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley accepted Baroness Casey's deeply troubling diagnosis that the force contains racists, misogynists and homophobes and has systemic failings but tried to kick the accusation of institutional problems into touch. Not a good move. Firstly, the Met does have a problem with institutional failings, and this is not a time to say otherwise. Secondly, Casey's report contains some clear pointers about how to start the process of fixing the issues, starting with fixing the unbelievably broken fridges that let down rape victims. The fact is that Casey is a horror show and a shit show, 
even if it was turned into something of a sideshow last week by Johnson et al. It has to come back to the top of the agenda for three reasons. Firstly, I do not believe for one minute that the problems are confined to the Met. Ask women police officers around the country about the behaviour of their male colleagues and you will get a lot of the same stories. Secondly, as a Londoner file, I do not see how a great city can ever claim to be great if it allows its police force to be so toxic. And lastly, because the majority of police officers in the Met are, I am convinced, decent people, if we don't sort this out, they will start to walk in large numbers and make the problem even worse. On this topic, my shout out for the week on this issue goes to Gabby Hinsliff in The Guardian, who pointed out that Suella Braverman as Home Secretary should spend more time focusing on these issues rather than spinning fake news about woke behaviour. I quote. But remember too, when the Home Secretary harumps about woke policing, that this is a force arguably nowhere near woke enough. Almost one in eight female staff reported being sexually harassed or assaulted at work. A Muslim officer found bacon stuffed offensively in his boots. A black officer recalled being repeatedly asked for ID inside a police station and mistaken for a prisoner even when wearing a suit. One last point. The Met Police budget is 18% lower than it was a decade ago thanks to Tory cuts and austerity. We cannot and should not forgive individual officers who have transgressed. But we should not be surprised either that a badly led and poorly funded force, held back by the Tories' poisonous attitude towards the proper funding of public services, will inevitably fail. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to the Eye-Catching Words podcast. I hope you enjoyed the slightly different format and my thanks again to Peter Collis for such an interesting conversation. I look forward to speaking to you again next week. (laughs) 